Sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. How do we take this data and use it to inform how we develop new products, how we implement our services in a way that is of value to the higher value customers? Such an important point. You know, so much of the customer centricity stuff ends up being just locked within the marketing organization and companies either unwilling, unable to talk to their partners in other parts of the organization, such as R&D, such as supply chain, and in particular, such as finance, to get them on board with it. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Peter Fader. Peter's the author of the Customer Centricity Playbook, Implementing a Winning Strategy Driven by Customer Lifetime Value. Peter's also a co-founder of Theta Equity Partners, and he's a professor of marketing at Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania. And Peter's joining me on this episode of Sales Enablement, which is episode 765 to talk about how you can maximize a customer's long-term financial value to your company by aligning the development and delivery of your products and services with the current and future needs of your highest-valued customers. Now, we'll dig into how you can develop a deeper understanding of the inherent characteristics that make up your highest-valued customers, and from that, then, develop the strategies to find and acquire other customers just like them. All right, we'll get into all that and much, much more with Peter Fader. Let's jump into it. Peter Fader, welcome to the show. Hey, good to talk to you. Yeah, so uh, gosh, you know, we were scheduled to talk last week and you had to go, they were recording this in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, you had to go get on an airplane. So what was that like? You know, we're all shut down, we're in New York shut down, I think Philadelphia's probably shut down as well. Uh, what was that like to have to go get on an yeah, airplane? It was really strange, uh, the, you know, airport totally empty. Uh, the, the, I paid uh, something like $35 for a plane ticket from Philadelphia to Denver. Uh, got an upgrade. Yay. Um, <laughs> there were fewer than uh, fewer than 10 people on the plane. Wow. So you're spaced out. You're all socially distanced appropriately. Oh, yeah. No, we really were. And I got to say, the, the flight attendants were wonderful. Uh, they were just being really, really careful. Uh, and, and, you know, no one was coughing or sneezing. A bunch of people were wearing masks. Kind of wish mm-hmm, I did mm-hmm. myself. Uh, no issues there. Actually, in a, in a weird way, it sort of felt good that they're actually handling these things responsibly. But at the same time, I tweeted a couple of pictures about it, um, not saying, hey, this is cool, everyone should fly, but just merely doing that um, got a lot of people incensed, and I actually had to delete those tweets. Oh, I'm you, sure. You, sh- you shouldn't be endorsing uh, flying and so on. So that was, you know, again, it wasn't my intent. I was just trying to inform. Uh, but then we drove back. Well, so you did it as a, f- a family emergency. You had to go out a to dinner. A family trip, indeed, indeed. Yeah, not, not, no one's taking vacations these days. <laughs> no. uh, and so I wanted to drive back quickly. The last thing I wanted to do was st- stay in hotels and deal with rest stops and so on. But it's a long drive. It took two full days. Uh, just surreal because a lot of the rest stops are closed. Very few cars on the highway. Lots of trucks. Uh, uh, but I made it. You know, just just just. Washing up constantly, bottled Purell right there in the driver's seat. Uh, I tweeted from the road saying, uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, taking a car back from Colorado instead of catching COVID in the clouds or something mm-hmm. like that to basically say, nope, no flying. <laughs> People were okay with that one. So well, anyway, it's good to be home. So drive through restaurants, basically, I assume? Uh, uh, yeah, a couple of drive-throughs, and there were some rest stops open. Again, taking lots and lots of precautions. You don't get within six feet of the of the uh, of the, the payment systems and so on. 
Uh, so it wasn't the, the, the most, um, you know, uh, nu- nutritious or, or sleep-filled trip. It yeah, was, I was gonna say. Like a, a fun a family adventure. Uh, wouldn't want to do it again, but uh, but it, it, you know sometimes uh, it's it's a necessity, and I think we dealt with it reasonably well. Okay, all right. Well, yeah, I was I was thinking concerned about you last week when you said you had to fly, and then I was thinking, well, <laughs> I'm sure yeah. glad I'm not having to do that right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, my last flight was like two weeks ago, coming back from California to New York City, and it was. Uh, yeah, relatively full flight, but yeah, everybody was on on edge on the plane for sure. Indeed, yeah, I was on a plane also two weeks ago, and I noticed at that point the, the flights were relatively full because I think people were going to wherever they're going to shelter hunker place. down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at, at this point, people have done the hunkering down, so the, the the few people jumping on planes probably have a good reason to do so. At least I, I'd like to believe that. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. All right, so well, good. Well, we'll uh, we'll talk business now. Um, I don't want to dwell too much on the coronavirus because this is uh, yeah, it's certainly a yeah something we're dealing with now. But you know these episodes live forever, so we don't want to spend a lot of time on them. So um, we're going to talk about your book, Customer Centricity Playbook. Um, subtitle: Winning a Implementing a Winning Strategy Driven by Customer Lifetime Value. So, so you wrote before the customer even makes the first purchase from you that. Much of their potential value is already there, already evident. So, tell us what you meant by that. Yeah, I, I, it's a bit of an overstatement, of course. I'm, I'm not suggesting that you're predetermined to be a good customer or not, but there is some element of truth to that. Um, you know, there's so many companies out there that that have the idea of, you know, let's go out and acquire as many customers as we can as cheaply as possible, mm-hmm. and then let's educate them. Let's 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 show them why. And how we're going to delight them, and how we're going to turn them into ugly ducklings, uh, in, into beautiful swans, uh, and and that's actually pretty hard to do. Mm-hmm. There really is some kind of innate component uh, that, again, I'm not saying your future is locked in, but some customers are kind of basically born to be good, and some many are born to be not so good, uh, and trying to, in a way, change their fate is difficult. It's expensive. And from a business standpoint, it's less effective than just being smart in the first place about which kinds of customers you want to go after. That's basically where we're coming from. And this becomes more, I don't say relevant, but we'll say relevant just for the sake of it, as more of our economy becomes subscription-based, um, is, yeah, it's sort of the, the operating assumption is that yeah, we just want to get people in the door because we get them in the door, then we can increase their usage and we can increase the just you know the quantity of usage and the number of seats they have and so on, and turn these people all into, as you said, from ugly ducklings into swans. I feel both ways about that. On one hand, there's no there's no question that once we have a subscription relationship with with someone, we have the opportunity to be able to kind of track them and, and do more with them, and we kind of know if they're active or not. Sure, we have more insight, right? Yeah, exactly. Better data, more, more insights, um, and, and a way to kind of more easily remind them that, hey, it's time to buy underwear or flowers or air conditioning filters or you know any kind of periodic thing that you should be buying, but you usually don't. Um, so, so there's a lot to be said uh, for the subscription revolution to really enhance these ideas. No doubt about that. But at the same time, these ideas are not limited to subscriptions. Again, subscriptions help us shed a light on building relationships. But the same issues arise even in a non-subscription, even when you're just buying things on a discretionary basis. It's just harder for companies to kind of know where you stand, to be able to get the the, the data and the insights. So it doesn't make it any less important. Uh, And so I'm trying to win people over about building relationships regardless of the business setting but no doubt that subscriptions just make it more salient and a little bit easier. Yeah, and this is more of a business-to-business audience. So, you know, obviously a big component of SaaS and audience here listening to this is. But but you raise an interesting point, which I think is is one that, that we'll get into more as we talk about, is that a lot of the companies take the approach that we're just sort of indiscriminately going to sort of hoover up anybody that sort of relatively fits our ideal client profile. That's right. And uh, number one, we're not really quite sure what our client profile is. I mean, we'll sit around and do a whiteboard session. We'll say our target customer is or our personas are, um, but there's not usually a lot of really good science behind that. It's, it's more instinct. 
and even if we think we know who that you know target client is, uh, the way that we go after them is very often going to be cost based rather than value based. So let's get as many of them as we can as cheaply as possible. You know, the problem is a company like Google, and I don't mean any disrespect to them. I love them, but they they make us so aware of what we're paying to acquire a customer. We know what we're paying mm-hmm. for that click. We know we're paying for that uh, placement in, 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 on the search page. Uh, and so it's all about cost, cost, cost. The only way we can kind of manage and uh, gauge our acquisition process is what it cost us. So all I'm trying to do is to kind of balance that equation to try to bring value in, not to ignore cost, but to say, so what's the upside potential that we've acquired that we've uh, picked up on these customers that we've acquired, and does it justify that the, the cost that we pay to get them? If we can get uh, companies to focus more on well, where's the ceiling instead of where's the floor, um, we can get them to acquire customers more smartly, effectively, uh, and then have the subsequent decisions about retention and development and all the relationship building stuff uh, happen uh, more easily. Yeah, I mean, you have an interesting phrase in the book. You said that that um <laughs> that the term customer centricity sounds like it's really customer centered, but it's really not. Yeah, that, you know, I have to admit it was a bad choice of words. When I wrote my my first book back in uh, 2011 and 12 with that title, Customer Centricity, it was very clear in my mind. In fact, the subtitle of the book was better than the title, which is Focus on the Right Customers for Strategic Advantage. So let's figure out which kinds of customers we want to be centered around and what we should be doing with them and for them. Uh, uh, so it, it was very, very clear. But a lot of people uh, read those two words, customer centricity, in this kind of generic way. Yes, we're, we're centered around the customer. Uh, no, it's not what we're talking about. So uh, I didn't really help myself uh, with that phrasing. Uh, but uh, the good news is that, that a lot of companies are starting to get it on their own. They don't need me to hit them over the head with it. They're starting to realize uh, that not all customers are created equal and that if we kind of focus differentially on some rather than others, that we can get better ROI on those efforts. So so that the revolution is happening kind of naturally, even if, if I've uh, done, you know, taken steps forward and backwards, I'll admit it. <laughs> well, sort of the implicit in that statement, though, is that, hey, we've, and you sort of allude to this in the book, is that, yeah, we always have sort of known about this 80-20 Pareto distribution but we've just been ignoring it? Is that sort of the, the, the subtext to this? That's basically right. It, it, and, it's, and it's such a shame that we'll, 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 we'll talk about these things. We'll, we'll recognize that, yeah, I mean, there are segments out there. We, we know that customers are kind of different in terms of their wants and needs and, and so on. They're different in terms of how reachable, how cheap they are to acquire. Uh, but the, the big thing that I want to look at is, is to, uh, first of all, very carefully quantify those differences. Like, is it really 80-20 or is it Mm -hmm. it more or less concentrated than that? How does that vary across different kinds of business settings? Um, And what is it that makes that 20, in other words, 20% of the customers who bring us 80% of the revenue or profits, what makes them distinct? Again, not in terms of stereotypes and intuition, but in terms of hard data about you know, who they are, how we acquire them, how they differentially use our products and services. So I'm just trying to take that, that, that basic notion and, and do it for real. And in this day and age, uh, as we get better data, due in part to subscriptions, but just you know, in general, better technology, uh, it's, it's becoming possible to do that. But a lot of old school marketers uh, uh, either haven't woken up or they're somewhat resistant to it, to be honest. Yeah, well, I mean, because you could have an 80-20 distribution, but your 20 could be the wrong 20 for what you're doing, right? And this is where a lot of companies get stuck as, well, hey, this is who we sell to. But as you illustrate with the story about the EA and the beginning of the book is that you've got data that may tell you something different. That's right. And, you know, the ironic part is that a lot of these ideas first emerge and are best practiced in B2B settings. So, you know, if if you're a, a B2B supplier to uh, you know aircraft manufacturers you have a very small set of customers you know them very very well you know how they're different from each other you know uh, who's easier to serve who you can uh, kind of uh, deepen the relationship with so uh, so a lot of people have the intuition behind it especially in a setting when you have a, a small number of customers and you can kind of you know tag them up pretty easily the hard part is how do you scale this up uh, how, how do you 
maintain that that intuition, that degree of intimacy when you're talking about thousands, if not millions of customers. And my belief is that mm-hmm. with the kind of data analytics and technology that we have at our fingertips today, we can do that. Uh, and that's why uh, you, you mentioned uh, our example from the book of Electronic Arts, the gaming company. Uh, they're basically doing this with a billion customers around the world. Uh, and so it, so it is possible, but it's, but it's best, or, or put it this way, it's, it's inexcusable not to do it in a, set, in, a, in a setting where you have a relatively small customer base. Got to do it. Yeah, and B2B, you're not going to be dealing with billions or millions for the most part, like electronic arts. Um, but I think it you know, creates its own set of, like I said, barriers, if you will, as we talked about before, is that you start to get settled into thinking, hey, there's certain ways to do things. I mean, you know, one of the huge, even in the you know, SaaS business, you know, one of the key things they always talk about is, you know, let's identify our personas that we're going after and and you deconstruct personas well in the book, I think. I've never been a, a huge fan of them because I think they come too limiting. Um, well, too limiting, but also, as you said before, it's too much navel-gazing that if we simply look at the folks who have bought from us and say, well, that's our best customer. Well, but also, also I think if you look at it from an execution standpoint, though, as, as I like to say, we sell to people, not personas. And right. so when I look at the execution side of things is that we send sellers and turn them loose on personas and they don't know how to interact and they don't know because it's it's all that's supposed to be this way right I, this persona is supposed to have this answer to this question and if they don't answer that way it's like well what do i do uh, that's exactly right you know uh, in the old old days of marketing in the 1950s when we kind of basically discovered invented marketing as, as mm-hmm. we know it today uh you know the, the, one of the very first steps was oh my gosh the customers are different from each other you know, I guess we're going to have to come up with different messages for different customers. Oh, but that's going to raise our costs. It's going to add to complexity. It's going to make it hard to develop and implement strategies. So a lot of companies back then and still today looked at differences across customers as a burden. Again, as something that's going to create complexity and cost. Uh, and I see it as an opportunity that, hey, this is great. It's kind of nice to know that the customers are different from each other because if we can figure out who those best ones are, uh, and when I say best, I mean future value, not mm-hmm. necessarily cost to acquire, and find ways to deepen relationships with them, that we can make more money in a sustainable, defendable, quantifiable way um, than trying to either be everybody's best friend or just guessing at, at which segments are, are the uh, are the pretty good ones. Yeah, well, there seems to be this sort of preoccupation, certainly in, in the subscription business, about in the B2B world, SaaS business about cost of acquisition. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm not saying that companies shouldn't look at it, but they shouldn't obsess over it. I mean, here's a, a specific well, example. Well, this is what I'm saying is they're obsessing and like, you know, you could have somebody with a customer lifetime value of half a million dollars and they're obsessing about, you know, we can't afford a plane ticket to send somebody out to close the deal. Let's, let's you know, just do our inside sales thing. And I'm like, you know, you've got a half million dollar customer Right. Spend a thousand bucks and go close the deal. Make you, it happen. Yeah, make exactly. it happen. You'll beat your competition. They're all trying to sell inside. Actually, go visit the customer and differentiate yourself. Yeah. So I found religion about this uh, back in the, in the early 2000s um, when I kind of, I don't really want to say invented, but kind of stumbled into uh, some really, really good models to calculate, project, understand, act on customer lifetime value. And right. I'm really happy to share papers and technical details, but uh, that's almost less important than just understanding this different way of looking at things. You know, I, I came up with I was I, this, this magic wand that we can wave over each customer's head and the number shows up saying, here is their potential. And if, and if you go with that metaphor, that if we could kind of see the potential of each and every customer, we would act differently. We would be less cost obsessed. We would find ways to say, whoa, what makes these customers different? What, what, what else could we be doing with them? even if it's expensive or even if we'll make no money off of some of those auxiliary services. So I found it so frustrating uh, that I was you know, pushing this idea of create value, don't just minimize costs. Mm-hmm. And most companies would ignore it. They would just basically say, well, that's just not how we do things. Uh, and it wasn't until writing those couple of books that we right. referred to right. or the couple of startups that I've had, and I'm not sure how familiar you are with those, um, those have started to, to really uh, change the conversation in, in happy ways. And, uh, of course, happy to elaborate on that. 
Well, yeah, we'll we'll get into that because I want to talk. You layouts are the five mistakes companies make when they calculate customer lifetime value. But it seems like right. a, a lot of the issue around that is, and to your point before about obsessing on customer acquisition costs versus lifetime value, is I don't know data illiteracy. Yeah. You know, is is it seems to be sort of a fundamental issue we have, and I see it in spades in the sales space, um, and not necessarily about cost of acquisition and so on, but lots of things. Um, but it seems like that's sort of the heart of it is we just we get this data, and it's like, well, what's relevant, what's not. Yeah, and, and that's so frustrating because, again, the data is at our fingertips. It's so easy to collect. In fact, so many companies are already collecting it and then mm-hmm. just throwing it away because they don't know what to do with it. Um, or or they draw the wrong conclusions from it. Uh, that, that's right. They're the conclusions they wanted to draw before they even looked at it. So, the, so again, that's a big part of, of, of the rant over here is that don't view all that data and the CRM systems and the infrastructure required to collect and assemble all that. Don't view those as costs at all. Those are truly investments. Those are the ways to, to open the door to just a whole new world, to the, the magic wand that I, I mentioned before. And so, so my job as a professor is not only to say this stuff, but to try to make it as easy as possible to, to kind of, um, whether it comes to the models, to say, it's so easy. Here's the code. Here's videos. Here's spreadsheets. Here's just here. Come on. It's easy. It's fun. Um, as well as to motivate them through these books and through, uh, through, through uh, you know, interviews like this one uh, to basically say, not only can you do it, because I've seen other firms like yours who have done it successfully, but you really have to. <laughs> and that there's just no way that you're going to be able to maintain the kind of growth that you're expecting or that your external stakeholders are demanding um, if you just keep focusing on cost minimization. Uh, it, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's the path to the future. And I want to help lead you there. <laughs> well, good. We're glad you're here to help. And you see, see you know, an interim step taking place with with uh, within the subscription economy uh, now, which is on the B2B side, is this whole move toward account-based marketing, which mm-hmm. I'm sure you're familiar with. Of course. But even then, I hear very few people that are sort of advocates for that saying, well, let's calculate this customer lifetime value. They they Indeed. put a they put a they put a dollar amount they can sort of hypothesize to it, which doesn't really right. have to do with value because they assume value is just purely the monetary aspect of it, and they're doing it the brute force way. Is yeah, we're going to target these ten accounts because there's big companies. Like, that's it. That's it. That's it. They're, they're, that's it. So so what I'm talking about lifetime value the 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 amount that we really can't expect from you is very, very different than just kind of a, just an overall potential measure. They're so, a bigger company, so therefore, let's go after them. No, I'm not saying we should ignore firm size either, um, but but if the chemistry isn't there, now let's go back to the very beginning. If they weren't kind of born to love us, it doesn't really matter how big they are. Uh, so, it, so we really care about uh, just uh, more... Um, th- th- when I wave my magic wand, it's not just telling me about the size of the account. It's telling you about the strength of the relationship, uh, right. and that's ultimately more important. Right, and you define that as customer goodness, right? As sort of that's right. It's got these three three characteristics. Uh, you talk about preference, propensity, and potential. So let's let's walk us through an, an example of that of those three things. What it looks like if you're ex- evaluating an account. Well, first I want to give the history behind it. Sure. Uh, again, I'm just really good at stealing people's ideas and then kind of assembling them together. It's the best, best way to do it. Math to support them. Um, I, I think the real father of these ideas, or at least the person I give the most credit to is a gentleman by the name of Frederick Reicheld. And I don't know if that name is familiar to, to you or, no. or, or your listeners, um, but he's actually a real famous guy, and you know why. I'll, I'll tell you why in a, in a second. Um, so basically in 1996, which is, you know, 500 years ago, um, <laughs> he wrote a book called The Loyalty Effect that some of yeah. your long-in-the-tooth listeners might remember. That basically said these ideas. It said basically customers are born with a certain amount of goodness, and if you could find those just-right customers – then they're going to stay with you longer. They're going to purchase from you more often. They're going to spend more when they do. They're going to be cheaper to serve. They're going to um, um, make more referrals and referrals to better customers. And if we just find those just right customers, then this loyalty effect, this virtuous cycle kicks in. Uh, and so it was the idea that not all customers are created equal. 80-20 rules apply. So let me just finish the Reichelt story. Then I'll give sure. you lots of examples. So he spent the late 1990s and early 2000s uh, trying to find a way. Can we identify um, uh, uh, co- companies that are doing this well, 
or, or better yet, can, uh, if we're working with a company, can we come up with a metric to help them identify how good a job they've been doing at finding these just right customers versus the many, many, many so-so ones who mm-hmm. just happen to be cheap to acquire, but that's the best we can say for them. Or just happen to and, be there. And so Reicheld, uh, basically, uh, and, and again, I'm stealing his ideas. He's stealing ideas from, from other companies, such as um, Enterprise Rent-A-Car and, and others. Uh, uh, you and many people will remember him as the father of Net Promoter, promoter score. score. Got it. Okay. So, so it's really important to recognize, and I'm sure that everybody out there reckon, uh, uh, knows NPS and uses it in different ways. Its origins go back to this idea that if we can find companies that have a much higher proportion of promoters versus detractors, that's a good company. Mm-hmm. That not only might be doing well today, but has tremendous potential for the future. And a lot of Reichelt's work, that's what it was all about, is that NPS uh, scores or changes in NPS scores are indicator of future profitability, very much aligned with some of the things I'm talking about with lifetime value. Mm-hmm. So, so let's give credit where it's due. Uh, and, and every time folks are out there doing the, the net promoter score thing, and sometimes companies grow to hate it because it's now, you know, sort of imposed on them. Well, and they're doing it on a transaction by transaction basis with customers is drive the customers nuts. But yeah, go ahead. That, yeah, and that's not the point of it. It's just right. to kind of gauge the overall health of the customer base. Uh, and so basically, there's a number of companies out there that either got this initially, and that's why I, I, I want to point to the ones that, that Reich held. And now his kind of more recent partner in crime, Rob Markey, uh, also of Bain. Uh, so they've been doing just a fantastic job of both pointing to companies that have been doing it well, of talking about how to create the right kind of internal corporate culture to make this happen, uh, and just case studies of companies that have gone through that transition. So, so they're, they're doing it in a, in a, in a kind of a broad uh, NPS way. I'm doing it in, in, a, in a, let's say, a narrower, more technical CLV way, mm-hmm. uh, but they're very much aligned with each other. Uh, and in fact, the way that you would create that corporate culture and the organization structure and so on would be pretty similar, regardless of which one of those metrics you're talking about. Uh, and so it's been really interesting to watch companies go through that transformation or stick their heads in the sand and say, nah, I'm good. I'm just going to focus on cost minimization. Uh, so in my first book, I took to task a bunch of retailers uh, for being touted as customer-centric, but not really being that way. Uh, and in the 10 years since then, it's been wonderful to see how some, but not all of them, have actually changed their ways. Well, so I think- a, a really great one was, was Starbucks, for instance, right. um, where you know, it, for them, it used to be all about coffee. You know, Their founder, Howard Schultz, he was a coffee guy. It was all about what's the right roast we should be using, or maybe should we have a breakfast sandwich or not? But there really was no detailed view of how the customers differ from each other. So just be nice to the customer. Uh, and to watch the way that they've transformed, and as many, many, many of your listeners would know, the things that they do with their, with their mobile app, uh, there's a lot of the changes to the overall customer experience, uh, to the way that they'll kind of um, reward and inform you. A lot of it is by understanding, appreciating, celebrating the differences across customers and to try to be differentially appealing to the ones who have truly the most value. So, so a lot of really good examples of, of, of companies going through the transformation, um, others struggling. Uh, and many, many, many others who are just starting to take the baby step down that path. And it's uh, it's really interesting to see where it will all go and how all this COVID stuff will either accelerate it or inhibit it for different kinds of companies. Yeah, well, I think I think one of the, the big disconnects is when people talk about customer centricity or being customer centric, they think about it from the perspective of the buying experience right. almost exclusively rather than, as, as you describe it, is how do we take this data and use it to inform how we develop new products, how we implement our services in a way that is of value to the higher value customers. Such an important point. You know, so much of the customer centricity stuff ends up being just locked within the marketing organization uh, and uh, companies either unwilling, unable to talk to their partners in other parts of the organization, such as R&D, such as supply chain, and in particular, such as finance, to get them on board with it. So it ends up being the marketers, and I'm not being critical. I'm just 
uh, lamenting the fact that it's not done more broadly. So it's the marketers kind of doing the right things with the things that they have direct control over, but there's still a big disconnect uh, with the other parts of the organization uh, and its operations. So that's, that's really big, that if we can't win over the other C-level people within the organization, I don't want to say it's not worth trying, but we're, we're not going to have the kind of success that we might uh, want to achieve. So, the, so that's it. It's how do we win over the other C-level people? Uh, and so, uh, for instance, I'm happy to talk more about it uh, later on, but um, the thing that I'm focused most on these days is the idea of customer-based corporate valuation. Let's win over the CFO. In fact, let's start with the CFO. Hmm. And if we can show the CFO that these 80-20 rules are real and that there's all this potential value locked into our customer base that's not showing up on the balance sheet or the income statement, but it's, but it's there. It's real. It's tangible. We can actually take it to the bank. If we can win over the CFO, then winning over the CMO and everybody else is actually going to be pretty easy. Uh, and so that's the angle I've been focusing on most recently. Yeah, which is a great angle because when you think about the way most companies approach this in terms of deciding what they want to do from a product standpoint, it's like, well, let's look at the TAM, right? Mm-hmm. Let's look at the total total available market. And what you're really saying is, well, no, <laughs> our total available market really should be driven by the needs and desires of our most valuable customers. That's yeah, right. That's a much narrower segment than our TAM, but yet. You know, I work with a lot of companies, you know, startups and so on. It's it's always the thing. The, well, the VCs, same thing, right? Am I going to invest in this company? It's never the conversation about the highest value customers and how we exploit those. It's, yeah, we want to know what the best use case. That's great. But then how many people have that use case? That's right. Uh, that's right. And, you know, the, so the VCs, here we go again, baby steps. Um, you'll see some VCs talk about something like the LTV to CAC ratio. Sure. So it's the... Average lifetime value relative to the, the average cost per acquisition. And I'm not criticizing that. That's actually a, it's a nice step forward compared to where we were 10, 20 years ago. But the problem is not all customers are created equal. And so you can't just tell me what the average LTV is. I got to know what the distribution is back right. to the 80-20. You know, is there this, this big, is, is there a spike of customers way out there who would go through the gates of hell to stay with us, even if every other customer is just kind of eh? As long as we have enough of those customers, here we go again, the promoters, mm-hmm. uh, don't tell me about the average. Tell me about the, the size, the nature of that group. Uh, and that, that's going to be so informative to me. So I really need to have statistics on how the customers differ more so than just telling me about the average one. And that's a really hard concept for marketers <laughs> to get. Yeah. You know, averages is pushing it far enough, not Things like spreads and variances. Well, it's funny you bring that up because I'm just at this time I'm rereading Daniel Levitin's book Field Field Guide to Lies, uh, which is you know talking about the disaster of relying on just purely mean and median distributions as exactly. uh, making decisions. That's well, right. So go back to these three categories of customer goodness because we're you know we keep talking about the promoters. So you know the preference which you talk about is the degree to which your offering aligns with the customer's needs. Uh, propensity, which obviously is the promoter, and then potential future value. If you're relatively new to the market, or you're you know you're introducing a new product or whatever, is is how do you? I understand how you measure those in retrospect, right? But how do you measure them proactively? Yes, yeah. yes. Well, well, let, let's let's start. So um, let's, here we go again. Net promoter score is kind of a, a nice way to. Begin. But what if you have no history? What if you have no history? What if this is, you know, I've got a new product launch and we're, you oh, know, sure. we think we've targeted a new set of customers. I don't have a history of net promoters, NPS with them. Uh, sure, sure. So, uh, so what I've seen a, a lot of companies doing, there's a lot of really good research on it, uh, B2B as well as B2C, um, would be looking at different kinds of purchase intention scores. So this is okay. something that, that, you know, all companies would do all the time, sure. whether on a formal, informal basis. So, you know, would you buy this or what would you pay for this? Uh, and once again, the problem is they'll, they'll look at that, they'll average it out, and they'll say, you know, version A seems to be more broadly appealing than version B. But what they're failing to do is to, is to find out, is there this kind of, you know, core solid group of people that would do anything to have it? So, so it's, it's great to do different kinds of purchase intention uh, types of assessments, but it's really important to look at the spread among them, not just the mean. So we could have some kind of a product that's slightly less preferred than another one, um, but it's, 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 it's beloved by that, that, that core segment. 
Right. So, so looking at the spread of these things and using that to try to identify, so who are those customers out there who would do anything, would line up around the block to have this? What makes them different in terms of their demographics and their behaviors? And then what other kinds of features should we be thinking about to bake into this product that would be disproportionately appealing to, to those kinds of customers? So it's not that hard. It's just that most companies don't really have the, I don't say the discipline, they just don't have the, the training to think yeah. along these lines. Well, that, the whole idea about the distribution, though, is if you've got something that's, that seems slightly out of the main focal point or focal range of, of what they've been thinking about, yeah, there's no yeah. supporters for it, right? Because everybody's in love with sort of, hey, we just developed these great feature set and, you know, everybody's going to love it. And here's the TAM and let's go march down the path to it. That's right. and, but your point is, yeah, we've maybe over in this side of the range and the right side of the range. Yeah, we've got this one thing that these people kill to have this product. And yeah, maybe it's not as big of a group, but yeah, we won't go after the big one. Yeah, and so I want to tell, very important to tell the electronic arts story. And even though it's a, it's a pure B2C company, mobile gaming, and it'd be really easy for, for listeners to say, well, that's not us. Um, but if you just have the, uh, the, 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 the perspective that, that EA and other companies have had, uh, and again, the discipline to actually follow through it, it's a wonderful story. So they calculate customer lifetime value. Again, for now, let's not even worry about the technical details. Even if you did net promoter or just you know some mm -hmm. kind of customer happiness, fine, whatever. But, but let's look very carefully at those customers who are either most valuable or most happy or, or whatever. Say what, what makes them different and then start to do everything. So, for instance, when Electronic Arts develops a new game, you know, for most companies, it's how many copies of this thing did we sell? That's how we judge success of a new product. They say, no, 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 no. Uh, and the analogy that their former chief analytics officer, Zachary Anderson, gave me is he said, suppose we come up with a new game uh, and we sell a ton of copies of it, but it's also a bunch of people who have never bought from us before and never buy from us again. How much ongoing value have we created for our shareholders? Nothing. Right. Whereas if we come up with another game, we sell half as many units, but it's the people who will then buy more stuff from us or it helps us acquire customers, so great ones that we wouldn't have known about otherwise, mm -hmm. then the value of that game is going to be you know, 10 times greater than the first one. Um, so let's take into account this customer goodness, happiness, value um, when it comes to R&D. So instead of going to the R&D people and say, hey, R&D people, come up with the next cool thing that everyone's going to buy. It's, hey, R&D people, we have the sense that these are our better customers over here. Come up with something for them. Uh, and that goes against the grain of every company on the planet. In fact, for most companies, the R&D people would be offended by that. Right. If, if senior management told them to, to try to you know narrow down their creativity, so so much of the success of EA and uh, other companies has been to get that kind of buy-in, that alignment with R and D people for them to understand why they really ought to redouble their focus on, on certain kinds of customers. It's not easy to do that, but when you get it right, great things can happen. Well, I think that the key thing that came out of that story for me is in the passage I underlined when I was going through that was that. They created a new set of standardized metrics that that basically gave them this information they could make decisions from, right? And that to me, that was like, okay, well, that's it, right? That's what you're really trying to strive for is if you want to be able to identify who these customers are and what you can do for them. And, and now the right I want metrics. to talk about the metrics because this is so important, so important. Because for me, the metrics, again, I, I'm, I'm fine with Net Promoter Score, but I want them to be metrics that you could actually put on your balance sheet, in your quarterly filings, if you're a public company, mm -hmm. or things that if you're private, but you're thinking one day of going through a little bit of M&A dance, the kinds of metrics that you ought to be showing to your investors that they ought to be demanding from you. So as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I'm really pushing on this idea of customer-based corporate valuations, mm -hmm. CBCV. In fact, we just got a trademark on those words. Uh, and we actually wrote a letter to FASB, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, mm -hmm. saying, you know, today's financial statements look like they did 500 years ago <laughs> in an era where we couldn't <laughs> tag and track or right. recognize the value of individual customers. Let's change that. Let's come up with specific, easy to measure, universally sensible uh, metrics that ought to be included uh, in, in, in filings. Uh, and it was really cool that just last week, the FASB folks called us up and said, 
let's talk more about this. So give us an example. And they're what actually that would look like. to take these ideas seriously. Yeah, uh, which is great. And so, so, so I'll just give you a, an example. Sure. Some of these metrics are not mind blowing. Things like how many active customers did we have this quarter? In other words, how many customers bought something from us? Doesn't mean that's our entire customer base. The B2B setting, sometimes the purchases are really spread out. How many active customers did we have each and every quarter? And among those active customers, how many total orders did they place? How many, uh, uh, mm-hmm. the average number of orders they placed? These are two very innocuous measures. Most companies would say, yeah, sure, fine. If you want that, I'll give that to you. I can get that right out of my transactional logs. No problem. Um, turns out that if you give me those two metrics over a number of quarters, it's surprisingly easy for me to reverse engineer the future lifetime values and the distribution of them across the customer base. Mm-hmm. It, it might sound like magic, but it's, uh, that's my job. It's just to kind of do the math to show that if you give me the right inputs, the right customer metrics going in, that I can give you the right outputs that will let you better drive your business and evaluate the success of the campaigns that you're running. So I'm really pushing hard on the metrics conversation uh, trying to get companies, investors, and regulators to start bringing some of these marketing metrics um, into the picture. It's too early to declare victory, but I'm really pleased by the well, progress yeah. we've seen so far. Yeah, well, a company like Apple would hate that because the way they report iPhone sales is on a cumulative basis <laughs> as opposed to a period basis. <laughs> it's so funny you talk about that because that's another one of the companies that I was kind of critical about in, in book number one. Said everyone, you know, uh, Apple loves us, but the fact is that Apple doesn't really know much about their customers. You know, they have plenty of good data available, but they don't really make it a, a priority to do much with it. Uh, and uh, so, it, I'm actually going to be releasing a new version of that original book coming out in a couple of months. Um, and uh, and I basically say Apple has made effectively no progress uh, over the ten years since then. Every other company that I mentioned, again focusing on retailers, mm-hmm. not to say it doesn't apply more broadly, right. um, has has made progress. Walmart, Nordstrom, Costco, all these other companies that I, that I talk about, uh, Apple is kind of in a rut, uh, and that's a problem because they're they are a great company. I'm, I'm not yeah. denying that. It's just that they're not doing any kind of best practice work in this direction of customer centricity. And so too many companies aspire to be Apple, right? They want customers lining up around the block for that new product that they know nothing about, but they're never gonna be Apple. No. And so instead they should be chasing after the companies that are being a little bit more open-minded, data savvy, uh, and thinking about uh, these kinds of issues. Maybe not being obsessed with them, but being at least cognizant of them. All right, so what I wanna touch before we run out of time here is, is been alluded to earlier, you said there are five mistakes companies make in in creating their customer lifetime value, calculating their lifetime value. And there are a couple there that I thought were really interesting, but we'll just run through them all quickly. As you said, the first one is not accounting for the status of the customer. So what did you mean by that? Uh, So uh, something that we referred to at at the outset, which is, uh, are, are we in a contractual setting or not? Or is it some kind of hybrid setting where it's part contractual, part not, like Amazon Prime? Uh, uh, so, like I said before, it, it, it's kind of easy to think about this stuff in a in a subscription setting mm-hmm. where we know what the customer is doing with us, we know when they leave, uh, and then basically to either ignore the non-subscription setting or to try to make it look subscription-y, even though it's <laughs> not. So, right. so that's what I'm talking about, is that there, there's different kinds of, of business models, different kinds of customer sure. relationships. The biggest distinction to me is the is the, the presence absence of some kind of subscription thing? But even when we don't have it, we can still do this stuff. It's just it's just a little bit harder. Okay. Um, another one, which was, I thought was very interesting and relevant to what we've been talking about, is believing customer retention rates remain the same. Yes, so important that that when we acquire a group of customers, and this is going to be true B two B, B two C, product services, domestic, international, we acquire a group of customers. There's not the retention rate. Well, actually, we see retention dynamics. Mm-hmm. That if you look at a group of customers, I, I want every company to do this. We'll look at all the customers that you acquired in, let's say, January 2018. Uh, and especially in a, in a subscription setting, uh, ask yourself how many of them uh, re- renewed their subscription from, you know, let's say, you know, one month to the next and then the next month to the one after that. Look at the, reten- the month over month retention rate. And what you will notice is that those retention rates tend to go up. So we acquire a thousand customers, and then we 
we, you know, 650 of them are new, and then 400 of them are new, and then 300 of them are new. You'll notice that those period over period retention rates go up. And then you say, aha, this is great. We're building relationships. They're learning to love us. We're learning to, to meet their needs. But very often, these retention rates are going up simply because of a shakeout. They were losing the so-so customers. Mm -hmm. you know, they tried us. Eh, not so good. They're gone. So basically, the customer base is kind of reshaping itself, narrowing itself just into those loyal, delicious, go-through-the-gates-of-hell customers. And so there's very important retention dynamics that take place as a customer base reshapes itself. So A, it's important to anticipate that. And B, it's important to learn from that because that's going to give us really good information about how big that juicy segment is and, and how different they are from the others. Which leads sort of to the next point is, is you said talk about believing your customers are normal is a mistake. That, that's right. That's right. So, so once I get people to to agree, okay, 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 not all our customers are, are created equal. Then they go back to that horrible math or statistics course that they took, you know, as, as a freshman in college, vowing never to touch that stuff again. <laughs> uh, and, and, and again, all your listeners are going to remember the good old normal distribution, the bell-shaped yeah. distribution. Uh, and we're, we're, we're kind of told by our professors and other experts that everything is bell-shaped. Well, it turns out that when we look at differences across customers, when we look at customer goodness, that promoter score, lifetime value, it's, it's anything but that. And the, the shape of the distribution is very, very, very different. If there's a whole bunch of people who are, eh, and then there's this long, thin tail of customers who, who, you know, there aren't many of them, but boy, are they valuable. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to understand uh, the, the, the nature of the, of, of the spread among customers and how that's different across our business units, our geographies, and when we do campaigns and when we launch products, which parts of the distribution uh, is it uh, most appealing to? So it's get, I'm getting a little technical here. I know well, people but I think it's still, But it's a great point. It's, it's, it's important. Right. We don't want to generalize. And that, the thing is, we have the data. Why would we continue to generalize, right? That's exactly right. Right. Because uh -huh. we, can, we can find these distributions. And, I, and the last point I think I wanted to get to on that is, is explain to people, because you said there's a, a non-financial you know, component of this valuation. So how do you how do you how do you value that? How do you weight the non-financial part of it? And explain what that part is and, yeah, and how do you weight it? Explain what it is. Because yeah. in many ways, for a, a data-oriented guy like me, it's almost my Achilles heel. Because I want to it's so easy for me to work with transaction log data. Mm -hmm. It tends to be very clean, it tends to be very standardized across companies. It doesn't change much over time. So I love transaction logs. But I have to acknowledge that the, a lot of the value that customers bring is, doesn't necessarily show up directly in transaction logs. So it could be things like social connections. It could be that some people don't necessarily buy a lot of stuff, but they, they talk about us a lot. Mm -hmm. And so they bring value just by getting others to either be acquired or to buy more with us or to stay with us longer. Uh, and that's a little bit harder to measure. It's going to be a lot more kind of context dependent mm -hmm. than just saying here is the social score. Sure. Um, so, so, so a big part of it would be social, but also in many other settings, um, there, there's more to value than just dollars and cents. And a really, really good example would be, let's say, when we're talking about um, healthcare, different kinds of mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, healthcare products and services. You know, if you're if you're a hospital. Um, you you got to be really careful about measuring people purely on the dollars that they bring to you. Uh, so we really should be measuring based on on outcomes. Like, are we improving your life? You know, are we right. letting you live longer and and have more you know, satisfaction in your activities? So very often, those two things, you know, quality of life and money that you spend with us, could be at odds with each other. Sure. So and so in, in many settings, there'll <laughs> yeah. be right. other we, kinds we, of we, metrics that will be as, if not more, important than just the financial stuff. Again, those are going to differ very much from one situation to another, uh, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't account for them. Yeah, and I think when you talk about the healthcare in particular, you were sort of—I think you were sort of making the point—is that at that point, really, the values of the organization come into play. Because yeah, if you're going to focus on people that have expensive end-of-life care as opposed to extending life, yeah, know, then then you've got a sort of a values issue, right? As an organization. And which raises a really important caveat, not just about the calculation of lifetime value, but about this customer centricity stuff in general. It's not for everyone. So if you're in a company where picking and choosing is 
a kosher thing to do, it's fine to say we're going to look more at some than others. But if you're in some setting where that would just be ethically wrong, like if we're talking about uh, health services delivery or pharmaceuticals or, or different kinds of municipal services, the last thing we want would be for, for government to be picking and choosing some citizens over others. So there's a lot of, of settings, uh, including some you know regular business ones, where just the, 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 the need to, to, to be there and to be responsive to everyone might um, outweigh the benefit of just finding those people off there, uh, over there on, on in the right tail. Right. Uh, and so I don't want to say that, that these principles, practices, and methods are, are for, for every organization. They're definitely better served in, in things like, you know, mobile gaming or travel and hospitality, where it's more of a discretionary spend than ones where it's really important to emphasize uh, kind of, you know, uh, inclusion uh, as, as much as it is to, to emphasize profit. Right. Well, I think they're very applicable, though, for a lot of the SaaS world, because, again, it's, it's we tend to do it as a brute force thing, right? They've got 500 seats, therefore they must be good, ipso facto, when, to your point, yeah, that's not really the case. And right. if you really want to grow a sustainable, at a sustainable rate, then you have to look at other attributes. So, all right, well, Peter, unfortunately, we've run out of time, but it's been fantastic talking to you. Um, how can people find out more about what you're doing? Uh, well, I, easy thing is to Google my name, and you'll see all kinds of crazy activities going on. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, in addition to all the academic work and writing the books, I had these two startups, one of which was a company, Zodiac, that we sold to Nike, but the current one, a company called Theta Equity Partners, Theta, not Theta, T-A-T-T-A, <laughs> um, uh, that's focusing on this idea of customer-based corporate valuation. I'm working with a lot of, uh, of public and private investors to show the value locked into their, their customer bases and then to get the marketers to give them the license to actually act on it. So a lot of the case studies that we've done there uh, have, have been uh, really instructive. Uh, and we really want to see uh, uh, not just finance people, but, but marketers as well yeah. um, uh, take advantage of some of these ideas and build bridges within the organization. Perfect. All right, Peter, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks. Great questions. And I'd be real glad to follow up with you or anyone else who's interested in this stuff. Okay. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. Bye now. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of this show. And I want to thank Peter Fader for sharing his story with you today. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this podcast and leave us a five-star rating. You can do that all on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. My team and I would really appreciate it. So thank you so much. And until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Hey, sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales, we're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.